Craigie and I just got to a, a level on Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze with beautiful music and the African nice. savanna. And I looked at him and I said, son, this is a celebration of life. And then every time uh, we play that level like that, he looks at me, he's like, dad, this is a celebration of life. And I get a tear <laughs> in my eye and I hug him. And I'm like, yes, it is. That's very cute. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 140. Today we are talking about our director of the year in a way. Uh, We're talking about Alfred Hitchcock, but in this way, all the filmmakers that have clearly been influenced by Hitchcock. So uh, this is Hitchcock's Disciples, and uh, everybody was followed in Hitchcock's footsteps. Alfred Hitchcock started making movies in the 1920s, even though there were people like Fritz Lang, who he was clearly inspired by, and others. There really is only one Hitchcock, and he made movies through the mid-70s, and really starting in the 40s, 50s, 60s, but especially with the movie Bratz of the 70s and onwards, you can really see people who are influenced by Hitchcock. Who is with us today? Live from Santa Monica, it's me, Daniel, because <laughs> I am today. Uh, I don't want to be here, to be clear, <laughs> but I have a button down on and I'm feeling I'm feeling my best. Hey, hey, gamers, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. I'm chilling not only with Hitchcock's disciples themselves behind me, but uh, with a with a man who one day we will all worship, whether by force <laughs> or by grim acceptance, uh, Edwin Gomez. What a good intro. Hello, America. I wanted to very much sleep in, and now we're still doing this. I would like to go back to sleep very much. Edwin, would you do your intros? Because I'm playing so much like Mario and Luigi's Haunted Mansion with my son. Can you go, it's a me, Edwin. No, I refuse. I refuse, oh. sir. I okay. refuse. That gets Craigie to laugh every single time. It's a me, Mario. I don't, I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. I'm tired. I got a picture to make. I got oh, yeah. Let's, man, let's talk about that. Edwin uh, had fully financed, and I mean, that's a huge feat in and of itself. His short film, The Last of the Greats, he raised all the money that he needed. So Edwin deserves a hand there. Good job, man. That's so right. when, when does production start? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue. Probably in March or April. I don't know. But I'll say this, coming after you, Craig, coming after everything I got. What, what exactly would you do to me? Like, how are you coming after me? In what way? I don't know. Be fair, Edwin, shorts and features don't really compete with each other. I, 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 I <laughs> make the rules. I, mean, just, I just make the, the rules, right? Look, who knows? Edwin may see into the future. There may be this weird, like, festival where suddenly his short where shorts are in competition they're just an overall competition yeah they go head to head and then everyone is looks at edwin and they go you truly are the first of the new greats and craig hamill's movie sucks and then edwin <laughs> rises like this and then they hit they hit a button and a trap door opens underneath you and you <laughs> drop straight to hell <laughs> i think i see it more as a john ford shot where they all run from me to edwin and they're all mobbing Edwin, and then I'm left a solitary sad figure as Edwin is hoisted above the shoulders of the film Literati, and they disappear into a light in the distance, and then just a shadow falls on me and then cut to black. That's what you mean, right, Edwin? That's the scene you want? No, I was thinking like a shootout, explosions, and um, oh. yeah, like the Chuck Norris uh, kind of way. Less melancholy and more canon from the 80s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. 
right. We have started our March Musical Madness Month. Next Thursday, we are going to be doing Labyrinth and Moon Age Daydream, two by Bowie. Moon Age Daydream is a fever dream of footage that the Bowie estate had that everyone is just talking about being this incredible sort of almost like a Bowie album unto itself, not your normal Talking Heads doc. So there you go. So come join us. If you are a filmmaker as well, you have until March 15th to submit a short to our uh, open mic short night, which will be the last Wednesday in March. I just want to say you can submit a short you made 30 years ago. The only rules are it has to be under 10 minutes. And if it's like 10 minutes and five seconds, of course, we'll consider it. But it can't be 15 minutes. And it, it just can't be intentionally hateful in a negatively propagandistic way against any one group of people. Those are my only two rules. Your short could be G-rated. It could be NC-17 rated. We have shown both. What if it's hateful against us? Against Secret Movie Club? The podcast. Yeah, I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about you watch it. If it's hateful against Edwin, Connor, and Craig, that might be amusing. I mean, I'm Irish. The way we show love to each other is by making fun of each other. So that probably would get in. I'm just talking about something that doesn't seem like it has a lot of artistic merit. And it's just hateful. We don't need that. Other than that, that can be angry. That's different. You can have an angry movie. But anyway, under 10 minutes. And other than that, there are very few things we don't let in because we're not here to gatekeep. That'll be the last Wednesday of March. However, if you want to compete in our competition where you win the Secret Movie Club Open Mic Short of the Month Award, you get interviewed. Your short gets shown to our audience, which is now almost 90,000, I'm happy to say. You get two months of free tickets to anything we do, you and a plus one. The theme is song and dance to go with our March Musical Madness. But this time... You have to either have an actual musical number or an actual dance number in your short, and then it's in the competition. I don't know if I'm going to do this, but I'm actually working on a song, and I'm just going to film it. We'll see how it goes. As always, if you have any questions, suggestions, tirades, angry protests, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com, and I always say this, but the cheat code is just follow us on Eventbrite. And anytime we announce a new event, you're going to get a notification and you're going to be able to get tickets right away in case we do something awesome with a speaker or anything like that. This is sort of an unofficial part two to a pod we did a few weeks ago on the romantic thriller because we really dived into Hitchcock there. I didn't realize quite how adjacent this was going to be, but I think that's how it started out, actually. And then we kind of it? realized it would, it would make sense to structure it this way. So, I mean, there's definitely way more that we can talk about. But today, what we're really talking about are Hitchcock's disciples. By the way, I didn't talk about our sponsor for today. Speaking of disciples, they're disciples of Jesus, disciples of fitness, disciples of the devil. But today we're here to make you a disciple of dysfunctional unsweetened tea. That's right. Brewed by a family full of unbridled hate, conflict, and rage. You may not love this tea. In fact, you may actively try to avoid it, but you'll never forget it and it'll stay with you forever. Dysfunctional family tea brewed in Northern California. <sighs> All right. So speaking of disciples in cinema, there are a few filmmakers where you can definitely see they had a huge influence. Today, we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock and the disciples of Hitchcock. But just by way of example, Quentin Tarantino may be the most recent director or Wes Anderson. I, it's sort of a toss up between those two who sort of created their own subgenre for a while of Tarantino disciple movies or Wes Anderson disciple movies. These are movies that if it was Tarantino, inevitably it was filled with violence and guns 
and people having really long conversations. If it was Wes Anderson discipleship, it would have been very sort of, I, I want to say this the right way, but very twee. twee. I, I, that was the word, but I want to find it like whimsical. I don't know how else to say it, like a whimsical, staged very tablos. formal, staged, whimsical. Yeah, I was trying to think of anybody else recently. This this is more of like a corporate pushing thing, but there's a lot of Matrix post-Matrix in the, in the water. There you go. Yeah, Wachowskis. I'm sure that all of us could probably fill in the blind spots of the others. Pre-Hitchcock or concurrent with Hitchcock, I think you certainly could say that Godard created a whole bunch of Godard disciples, almost certainly. John Ford created a lot of John Ford disciples. Howard Hawks created a fair amount of Howard Hawks disciples. We're seeing a lot more John Carpenter come through now. Dario Argeno. I mean, I guess we could go on and on and on. But today we're talking about Alfred Hitchcock. And then we're also going to be talking today about what, what that means and how we feel about that. When a filmmaker has such an influence that people literally make Hitchcock movies or devote part or all of their career to Hitchcock influence type material. I'll go ahead and start with the obvious, which is Brian De Palma. We'll get it out of the way. I'd never seen Sisters and I watched that for the pod, which was great because I think you were right. We were talking about this on a recent podcast. De Palma has these movies that are like straight Hitchcock riffs, Dressed to Kill as Psycho being the most famous one. Oh, but Body Double is straight up Rear Window. Obsession is straight up Vertigo. I, I should see those. I actually have not seen a lot of De Palma. To be fair, I've seen most of like the top tier, like the stuff that people are always like really- Carrie, Scarface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Carlito's Way is the biggest one I haven't seen. Ooh. So good. But Carlito's Way is also kind of more of a like later. That's like the 90s, right? It is. Yeah. I think just before the Mission Impossible. I think in Sisters and Blowout specifically, Blowout is a little more like distilled and even. I think Sisters is very like young and scrappy and you can kind of see the like edges of what he's smushing together where Blowout really it's like hard to point to like a specific Hitchcock film that it's doing whereas like sisters as much fun as it is um and it totally works but sisters is basically what if a psycho happened in a rear window <laughs> you know what i mean it's like a it's like a hitchcock turducken for sure and by the way uh, blowout is much more identifiably influenced by michelangelo antonioni's blow up so much so that he just changed one word in the title but what's weird about it is that it plays more like a hitchcock than an antonioni yeah it's more like tonally influenced by Hitchcock, but it, you can also see his other influence, like Italian films specifically. Oh yeah, for sure, Giallo. And... Whereas, you know, Sisters, you can tell, was was like pretty low budget, because this must have been like right before Phantom, The Paradise of the Phantoms in this. Yeah, early 70s. What did you think, dude? What do you think of Sisters? It was great. I liked it a lot. It's funny, It remind, there's a recent movie that it reminded me of that I can't really say because it kind of spoils one if you know the other. But I, I guess skip if you're really scared. But um, if people are listening, yeah, here you go. Spoiler. So turn it off or turn it down for the next 10 seconds. Malignant. That movie kind of has a similar sort of thing in terms of the like conjoined twins and stuff. How crazy is that split screen sequence? Oh, great. Well, there's like a couple. They're so good. I think I might agree with you. That is maybe my my new favorite use of them. I, I think what works about it here is that it's he's using it to show overlapping action instead of cross-cutting, which is such an interesting thriller technique that is inventive in a way where I wonder if like Hitchcock saw something like that and was like, man, 
I wish I had done that. <laughs> yeah, as far as I know, I don't think Hitch ever did a split screen. It'd be cool to ask him his opinion on like those split screen sequences where it's like the different groups of characters all like barely missing each other while characters like moving bodies and knives. And I think De Palma might be my next. I'm not going to do a full dive, I think, on him like I did with Spielberg because there's a bunch of movies here. I'm looking at like Wise Guys. I'm like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, come on. Wise Guys is great. Give it a um, chance, you bastard. It's funny, dude. There are movies by De Palma that to this day I'll be like, oh, what's the rabbit movie, Edwin, from the late 60s, early 70s? Get to know your rabbit. I have all the ones I haven't seen relisted year and i have about a third of those i have like highlighted like i'm gonna watch these and then there's the other ones where i'm like i don't know I don't know if I'm going to watch Domino. That's a great place to start. We should dive into it because the most, I, I want to find the right word, but if you're really into movies, it is usually common accepted wisdom. That's maybe what I'm trying to say. It's usually accepted wisdom that the son of Hitchcock and, you know, De Palma was making movies while Hitchcock was alive was De Palma and De Palma. Interestingly, you know, Sisters is clearly Hitchcock and then there's Obsession. Hitchcock is still alive and then Dressed to Kill was, I think Hitch was still alive or had just died. You know, in fairness to, to De Palma, a lot of people say that De Palma took the Hitchcock technique and pushed it further. So, you know, like De Palma has some pretty amazing steady cam shots that you don't really get in Hitch movies. So he sort of took the technology that Hitch didn't have and found ways to create suspense or purely cinematic sequences. Or like the split screen. Like the split screen, exactly. And even in a movie like Mission Impossible, the first Mission Impossible, that sequence where Ethan, what's the name of his superior in the fish aquarium restaurant at the beginning? I don't know. Yeah, whatever that, forgive me. Borjo. <laughs> Borjo. Mojo Gojo. Uh, but, but I mean, everyone will know what I'm talking about. In the first Mission Impossible, there's a very famous sequence where Ethan goes to meet his superior in Prague and realizes that he's in a restaurant full of moles who are there to kind of jump him and take him in. And so he blows up the table and blows up the aquarium. And it's all these really low angles. It's a pretty incredible sequence because you can feel the tension. And I think he looks over his shoulder and you see these people looking at him. And that's in big blockbuster filmmaking, De Palma doing a kind of Hitchcock scene in a way to raise tension. Psycho. It's a good movie. That was made by Hitchcock, Edwin. Oh, Who is a filmmaker influenced by Hitchcock? Like I said... Psycho. Oh, are we going to Psycho too? No. I was surprised you're not picking it up because uh, certain stars in it, and I just posted the poster of him last night. You know, his name is Gus. Oh, Gus Van Sant. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, we're Edwin. Edwin yeah. wins an award today. What a great call. Talk about that. I actually like the remake of Psycho. I think it's great, but there are some things that don't work. Would you mind telling the audience why that remake is so singular? One, why would you remake something that's already perfect and it has like at least four sequels? This is like the only horror movie that Gus Van Sant did. I mean, he, he... Elephant is a real life, obviously it's about the Columbine shooting, but it's pretty horrific. Yeah, but that's not horror though. That's like a like like slasher, you know? Yeah, no, I hear you, but it's unsettling. But yeah, anyway, keep going. Gus Van Sant decided to remake Psycho shot for shot even adding the same musical score by Bernard Herrmann, which is still great to hear. And it has all the same ropes, but there's some scenes that are different. There's one thing that he did that Hitchcock couldn't have done, and I read this in the trivia once. So you know how the opening credits, there's a scene where the camera is like going to the hotel room and it and just goes right in? So apparently, Hitchcock wanted to do that, that similar sequence, but the technology wasn't so advanced yet. 
but Gus Van Sant later just uh just did it. Oh, you mean the opening shot where Janet Lee is having the affair and the camera it's like Phoenix, Arizona and it goes straight, but there's an invisible cut. It's kind of an obvious cut. It works like tempo wise yeah. in, in the Hitchcock version, but it, it's clearly like two different shots. Uh, they're zooming and I think they do a fade in the zoom and it totally works, but it's not like a flawless single shot. Yeah, but it's Vigo and some other lady. I forgot her name. She passed away recently. Anne Hage. Anne Hage. Rest in peace, Anne. Rest in peace. Vince Vaughn is uh, Norman Bates. And I gotta, I gotta say, terrible casting choice. <laughs> like, that guy is not Norman Bates. Uh, there's one thing that Gus Van Dead did change, you know, when uh, where Norman Bates is looking through uh, the girl, through the little people, and in the original one, he just stares. But in this one, he's like, touching himself like why why would you do that that's not that, 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 no that's just weird because i mean if you want to do it for shot for shot you could just let him watch and not just do that other thing and just it, it, it was so out of place um and it's funny now that you're talking about edwin what a stacked cast the remake had because it's julianne moore in the vera miles part and isn't it william h macy in the martin balsam part that's right and uh wow. robert forrester and um, oh yeah robert forrester in the psychologist part yeah it, it's got a great cast a very great cast but you know it just it's just doesn't work you, you can't remake something that's already done so perfectly that's what hitchcock did to make sure it cannot be touched beside the palma i guess my understanding is i mean maybe this is like a, a post hoc justification for doing this film but i think part of the idea or, or maybe the assumed idea the the legend idea is that gus van sant made this as kind of a like why would you make this as like an experiment on the idea the futility of remaking something as perfect as psycho no totally in fact we'd have to talk to gus van sant but you can only approach it as a warhol thing no for sure that's what this movie is that's exactly how it is. The most nursing way to maybe watch it would be like as an art exhibit side by side. Well, and what's interesting is he only made one specific deviation from the movie. There's the, the masturbation thing, which almost feels like maybe he thought, well, if Hitch could get an R rating back in the day, would have done it. Because there is a sense of sexuality even in the first one. But he actually cuts to flash cuts in the remake that Hitch never did, where you see a woman on a bed with like a, a Victorian mask. And then you see like another weird image. And that's something that Van Sand had toyed with in other movies. That's the only original edition he made. And it's, it's the only thing I really remember from the movie. So when you talk about Disciples of Hitchcock, I'm going to be stating the obvious a little bit. When we, you know, when you talk about being a disciple and we chose that verbiage, a disciple in a way is following a teacher or following a master. And you, you say, I'm going to subsume my identity to the master because I want to learn from the master. I like the filmmakers who I would say are the spiritual heirs of Hitchcock, which is that they're very much their own voices. But you really feel the fundamental understanding of cinema that Hitchcock had, they have. And I think I'm gonna, about to state the obvious, but I put forward Steven Spielberg and David Fincher. And I would say that probably... You'd be really hard-pressed, in my opinion, to name anyone around the world. Pedro Almodovar, I mentioned last time, and he is definitely in, in the running there. But you'd be hard-pressed to name anybody who has as fundamental an understanding of cinema that Hitchcock had in that entertainment way where Hitchcock was entertaining but also getting his voice through and also had sort of like an idiot savant understanding of what cinema really is as Steven Spielberg and David Fincher. And, you know, the two movies I put forward with Spielberg would be Jaws and Duel. 
as the most obvious and you go, oh, look at the techniques he's using there. You know, dual, I think this is a very Hitchcock thing. You never see the driver. You only see the truck. So you only know the menace of the movie. It's almost a psycho thing. You never see the mom until the end. Then when you see her, there's the twist. But, you know, here you never see the driver. And then Jaws is the birds in a way. And it's Moby Dick as well, to, to be frank. But Spielberg implying the shark by the musical theme or implying the shark by the fin or, you know, and he had to do it. Obviously that's well documented or implying the shark by the yellow barrels. I think the thing about Hitch is that Hitch was a brilliant editor and Spielberg is a brilliant, brilliant editor. And the story goes, I know you guys probably know this, that the studio was watching the footage come back from Jaws and all they were seeing were hours of these yellow air canisters. (laughs) (laughs) Just going this way and that way. And they were calling the producers and they were like, "Uh, we got to fire this guy. And the producers were like, "Uh, look, the shark doesn't work. He's doing his best. And the person who saved Spielberg was his editor, Verna Fields. Basically, Verna Fields was telling the studio, no, you are wrong. I'm editing this and it's editing amazingly. He knows what he's doing. And the story goes that the producers went to Spielberg and gave him a choice. They were like, you can go if you want. And Spielberg has been open. He had a breakdown on the movie. Like, you should see the interview. He had a nervous breakdown on the film. He thought his career was over. It was going wildly over budget. But his brilliance allowed him to edit. And then, the you know, Fincher, uh, look at how Fincher brings his native understanding of cinema to a movie that would seem be seemingly un-Hitchcockian like The Social Network. And the thing I always point out to people is Hitch was brilliant in reserving a certain kind of shot for a key moment. And in The Social Network, I remember, and I love The Social Network, but when Andrew Garfield finds out that he's basically been axed from Facebook... It's the only time that Fincher puts the camera at a low angle, wide angle lens and tracks and Garfield throws open the doors and he storms to uh, to Zuckerberg. And I was like, now there is a mother effing filmmaker who was like, I'm saving that shot for this one moment. And when that moment hits, you're like, boom. And that's filmmaking to me. That's the money shot. That's the money shot. And I mean, the patience and control Fincher had to have To be like, I am only going to use that grammar in that one moment. One of the most obvious Hitchcockian Finchers is the game, frankly. When you look at the game, the game is very Hitchcockian. The game is a mash piece. I love the game. But that's probably Fincher's Hitchcock movie, is that it even takes place in San Francisco, which, in all fairness, Fincher's from San Francisco. The other one I was going to say is most recently, I'm a huge Gone Girl fan. Uh. I did not expect to like Gone Girl. I went into it being like, I'm just going to do it because Fincher did it. And I found that to be an incredibly dark movie on marriage. Not one that I agree with, but I was I was laughing. I thought this is a dark comedy on marriage. But from the heart. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels like Hitchcock in that way, too, that I think Hitchcock is underappreciated in and that his, a lot of his best stuff have these like overlays like all the best art does of like what it could mean and stuff. And so doing this movie about marriage, so many of Hitchcock's movies while being thrillers are really about like relationships. And what I would say is the reason I think that Spielberg and Fincher are the real spiritual heirs is because there's a there there. I mean, I agree with you completely, Connor. When you see a Hitchcock movie, there's the A story and there's always an interesting subtext. He's just a consummate filmmaker in that way. And you can, you can have it if you want it or not. And in Gone Girl... And I haven't read the source material, which I know is a runaway bestseller, but I don't know what I was expecting, 
But I was certainly not thrilled to go see a Ben Affleck movie. And listen, no, no disrespect to Mr. Affleck. But when I saw the movie, and I remember the shot where I was like, oh, this is interesting, is when he opens up his garage and they're all of the video game systems and things that he's bought, supposedly, that makes it look like he's taken the money and he really has killed his wife. And I was like, oh. Why did I doubt Fincher? It's like, don't bet against James Cameron. Like, why did I bet against David Fincher? And then at the ending, the last shot of the movie, if you've not seen Gone Girl, there are a lot of twists and turns. And the ending, I was laughing in the theater, but it's the kind of laugh where you have jagged glass in your stomach. Because I was like, oh man, I don't know if Fincher is a fan of marriage. Because this is a really dark ending. Well, Daniel, who who do you want to talk about? That was a terrible choice. Of course, he has to pick South Korean cinema. <laughs> I already know what what hit the Hitchcock in the cyber movie is gonna do, he, and he just saw it. So decision to leave. Yeah, just talk about that, Daniel. He did just talk about that. He, he's gonna pod, talk so about it regardless. And I'll play it safe by Daniel terms. I think my Hitchcock adjacent or someone that I feel is imbued by the powers of of what he set up to represent is probably Park Chan Wook. I think his filmography feels adjacent to that, and I'm sure you guys called this from a mile away. Yeah, we did. Edwin did. <laughs> we did. This is going to yeah. edit very interestingly. Only because I, I have to be real with myself. But I think so much of his stuff imbues that, but never in a way that I would argue some filmmakers feel like they're pulling from the play or kind of cop- lovingly copying from. I think Park Chan-wook wrote his own playbook of how he uses the rules, but it's sort of within that, like the understanding of tension. You know, Hitchcock's stuff felt slightly progressive or a little bit like... Erotic is not the word, but it felt a little sexy, a little horny, in his own ways in, in that era. A little, a li- you know, uh, a li- but but like in terms of how our worldview is today, how we how we look at that. Hitchcock was super horny. Well, now we want to, you know, sex isn't real, so we turn it off. That's where the state of the world is. But I think Park really leans into that to great effect. And my favorite thing is that there are very talented, like as I'm sure Connor spoke to, like Brian De Palma's love of Hitchcock is so apparent both in what he takes from directly borrowing it, also just the way that it sort of became part of his own voice. And I feel like Park's a similar way with his use of these situational things that sort of combine romance and crime and passion. And it goes across so many of his movies, which I think is why I I think to him immediately, um, even his latest decision to leave feels like a Hitchcock-adjacent type of picture of sort of this will-they-won't-they and should-they love story that is surrounded by a murder and the possibility that the person that you love did the murder and the idea of do you care or is love love type of thing and his vengeance trilogy is is its own singular thing but it has a lot of elements of sort of the ways of of whether it be in the ways that it's constructed or kind of the thriller-esque aspects of what we sort of see as us as the onlooker of what we get to see versus in terms of violence and sort of what we get to we're clued into which i always think makes it worse is when you have an idea of what's coming and you don't see it Psycho's craziest asset is that you really don't see anything in that shower scene, but the way it's cut, you feel everything, and you feel like it's so much worse than it was. And that's such a genius type of thing. And Park's one of those filmmakers that I think does that. I think often of toward the end of The Handmaiden, the segment in the basement with the fingers and the paper cutter. And you don't see, you, you see the, the remnants, but you don't see anything. You hear the noises and you see the reactions. And it's something about this weird, perversely gleeful, setting and the stories he's telling as it happens that just have that aura of a little nasty man respectfully nasty man thirst i think is another type of thing that's more of a a straight type of horror thing but it leans into like religion and the ideas of like (laughs) 
sexy bloodlust. And again, always this undercut of a thriller, like real people situations, these thrilling things of these, sort of the impossible ask of how do you make people care? And how do you make them believe that anyone would ever behave this way? And they both, I think, nail that. Many filmmakers have their influences. The reasons they got into cinema. You know, just like writers do, or, and you read a book and you're like, I wanna write a novel right now because that book blew my mind. Or you see a movie and you're like, I wanna go into movie making because that movie blew my mind and that filmmaker blew my mind. And a lot of filmmakers talk about, don't fight that. You have to work through your influences before you can really find your own voice. Don't be overly self-conscious about it. It's gonna happen whether you uh, intend for it to happen or not. So just accept that your early work will show the influences. And then as you get more competent, as you build your craft, as you build your technique, as you hopefully grow in your voice, you'll eventually evolve and there'll be techniques and things you do and themes that are, you know, uh, cruise-esque. I always love to play this game. So Connor, if you make movies, I think you're not cruising, you'd be cruise-esque. Maybe, I kind of like cruising. Or cruising. And then, and for Edwin, I think it would be Gomez-esque or Gomezian. What sounds cooler? It's really up to the audience. We can't really decide. I, I would say that I kind of like Gomezian. Okay, we'll go with that. Okay, Gomezian techniques, Cruzian techniques. For me, it sounds like a reptile if you say it. Hamelian? <laughs> yeah, I, th I, think, I think you're definitely Ham Hamel-esque. I would be Hamel-esque, I think. And, and I think Daniel would be Ott-esque. Ott-esque, Gomezian, Cruzian. Hey, look, a 50-50 split. Hamel-esque. Hopefully you work your way up to that. Now, nevertheless, it, sometimes you see filmmakers in movies where you're talking about the influences more than the movie. So what do you guys think about that, about making a movie based on your love of another filmmaker? What are your thoughts? I want to say Peck and Paul but that's a little too much i guess because he's he's a little violent and uh but you love peck and paw movies you don't have to love the man i do i i love peck and paw movies I, his style is amazing i love it. his style slow-mo is great those are the best things in those movies the slow-mo i love it a lot the best use in it uh it's either in bring me the head or Alfredo garcia and maybe pat garrett oh no, no scratch that cross of iron yeah, there's a great slumber where James Coburn has the, his machine gun and is blasting away on the Nazi. Like, bah, 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 bah. So awesome. Was Tarantino, has he talked, was he influenced by a Cross of Iron when he made Inglorious Bastards? Probably. I'm not too sure. Maybe the Dirty Dozen. No, the Dirty Dozen, that's that's a big influence. Oh, you'll know for sure. But, but with a Tarantino movie, there's usually like a stew of movies he's influenced by. The one thing he took from Peckinpah was Convoy, where the little duck on, on the Chris Chris Robinson's uh, truck, the little uh, thing on the top of the hood, that's in Death Proof. So that's that's a Peck and Paul reference. Other than that, I don't know. You've talked about Peck and Paul a lot. I certainly know your love of Peck and Paul, and you. I think you've seen everything Peck and Paul's ever done. No. Yeah, exactly. I have. Do you? I mean, Last of the Greats, the short you're about to shoot, is it influenced by Peck and Paul at all? A little bit, a little bit. I, I would say maybe the main character is based on Steve McQueen on The Getaway. This just the style, the style and the, and the action. Yeah, it's Peck and Paul, Walter Hill, and Poe Hopkins for sure for character wise. Peckinpah for me is like, he knows how to do action so damn well. It's ridiculous. Um, That style, I just I just love so damn much because it's so damn great. It's just his own little thing he just creates and it's so beautiful. And of course, like the best thing for that is Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Like you cannot redo those ever, ever again. 
besides Tarantino. What do you think about making movies that show that your influences? I'll make it well known. I'll make it well, really well known. So you'll say, you'll say, I was really influenced by Walter Hill and Sam yeah. Peckinpah. Oh hell, for sure. Even for scenes, I'll, I'll take a little bit from it and just like put it in the movie. Of course, like I said, the Peckinpah slow mo. That's what I love a lot. That's just great. Maybe some modern music for a Western movie like Bob Dylan for Pat Garrett. That was a great touch for a Western movie to have that kind of music. It's just awesome. You know, like De Palma must have known when he was making Obsession, even when he was making Sisters, I'm really showing my love a hitch here. Could you see yourself ever making a movie where there everyone's like, man, that guy loved Evil Dead? I think what's interesting is I made a ton of stuff. <laughs> I mean, knock on wood. We'll see how accurate I am. I'm being a little cocky here for once about my potential abilities to do things. But I made a lot of stuff when I was in high school, a lot of shorts, a lot of little web series, a lot of stuff when I was in college, a lot of shorts, a lot of web series, a student television show. And I feel like the really obvious stuff I have actually kind of worked through in certain ways. And when I think about the stuff I want to do, I can see like where certain bits come from, but it is like a more of like a stew. I can see like, oh, this is six different films plus a thing that makes me mad. <laughs> That's like in most of my movie ideas or a thing that deeply amuses me or a bad truth about myself or, or all of those things. That's an interesting recipe. That's nice, though, which is that you have your influences, but also something original and unique to you that is sort of thematic. There are certain directors who are like in my bones, like Raimi and Spielberg are probably the big two like the really big two um you know hitchcock is someone who i probably really came to more like later same thing with like a de palma same thing with some of these other directors even carpenter i came to a little like later like when i was um later in high school and in college whereas like you know spielberg was like as like a day one you know i was probably like a baby watching raiders of the lost ark or something and... did you have a beard back then i want to think of you as baby connor at one with a beard and then you know Raimi was started when i was 11 my 11th birthday seeing a uh, spider-man on the big screen and being like, yo, <laughs> <laughs> this rules. And I, I love Hitchcock, but I don't think I would ever vi visually. I could see people saying the Sam Raimi thing. And I have one idea that's like pretty evil dead influenced, but it's also like influenced by a bunch of other random stuff that has nothing to do with evil dead. And so I think people would be uh, like, oh, you can see that, but it's not overwhelming. But I also think Hitchcock has such a through line in cinema that you can almost like even inadvertently people reference him i watched something wild the other night the jonathan demi movie and that does the thing where uh melanie griffith dyes her hair from black to blonde <laughs> at one point and it kind of transitions how we think of her from that point on because before that she had been this sort of like total mystery and after that you start like meeting her mom and <laughs> meeting her who she went to school with and stuff that's a great movie what a weird great movie that is a weird great movie Ray Liotta's screen debut. Yeah, that was that was what got him Henry Hill. For a topic that I think about daily, I don't want to clog up your ears, secret movie clubbers, with platitudes. I find it interesting what Spielberg and Scorsese do, which is that they often will watch three or four movies that they love before they make a movie, just to, I guess, prime them or like get them in the zone and they'll be like, ah, it's great movie making. And then they'll do their thing. And, you know, Scorsese, interestingly, quotes movies he loves quite a bit. 
but I somehow love it in Scorsese because it feels more sublimated for some weird way into a cohesive, organic new thing. Other folks, it's just not for me. Like, I don't want to get into this whole thing. I think it's sort of a, a cuckoo's argument. And, I, and there's this postmodern idea that used to drive me crazy to no end when I was in college and, and after where everyone would be like, there's nothing new. You can't do anything new. So the only thing you can do is reference other things and talk about what you think about those things and curate other things and blah, 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 blah. And so then that became an excuse for wholesale lifting scenes or shots or costs costumes or things that worked and other things and just doing it. And, you know, look, by the way, what's interesting is that people have done that <laughs> for the last 10,000 years of human art, you know, and sometimes you recognize the influence and sometimes you don't. I, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson was very open that the Phantom Thread was watching Rebecca a whole bunch of times. I actually talk about a hitch. We did. How about that? I didn't even, that was the subconscious at work. And he also was open that There Will Be Blood was him watching Treasure of the Sierra Madre a whole bunch of times. And then like on the 10th time being like, my God, this is genius. And basically taking Fred C. Dobbs and turning him into Daniel Day. Lewis, you know, among other things, he's also adapting an Upton Sinclair book. And I, I don't want to damn uh, PTA because actually my favorite PTA movie is probably There Will Be Blood. Of course. I is. think and Punch Drunk Love for some reason. Those two are movies I love. In fact, this just happened to me and I, you'll have to see it. I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens in the Afterworld game. There were two beats that I was like, oh, <laughs> Like I just sort of lifted a Spielbergian Raiders of the Lost Ark thing for fun, jokes, two jokes. And I've thought to myself, I've had this unspoken rule with myself that if I notice that I am consciously imitating someone else, I'm going to change it. That's just for me. I just don't want to do it. And what you hope is that you eventually have the confidence to do crazy stuff. Where you're like, I have this crazy idea that I've never, I'm going to just try it. It feels right. And, you know, that's where you want to get to. Um, now, the thing is, we'll see when the Afterworld game is done and edited, if people are like, hey, those two beats, do you love Raiders of the Lost Ark? And I'll have to be like, I do. But I don't know. Do I change it? Do I take it out? Do I keep it in? Am I insulting Spielberg? Because <laughs> people are like, your movie sucked, dude. You don't deserve to rip off Spielberg. It is funny editing it. The one beat I just went through and I was like, oh man, I didn't even realize it at the time. Talk about the subconscious that I looked at the whole beat and I was like, well, that's clearly this beat. I must have so loved that beat that that much it must have been in my head. But anyway, my real hope is, yeah, look, you have your influences, you have your loves, uh, you have your ways of doing things, but you hope that you somehow work through it to original ideas, whatever that is. And I don't think it's bad if you do something and someone's like, oh, hey, you didn't notice Abel Gantz did that in Napoleon in, you know, 1925 or whatever, 1924. Hey, no harm, no foul. If you really were doing it earnestly, you just didn't know that was done. But I think it's great to take a chance and develop a confidence in your own voice and do something so that people ultimately go that was cruzian that was ott-esque that was gomezian you know that was hamill-esque when you're creating art i don't think you can help where your influences come from you can attempt to make dedicated decisions to either pay homage to or borrow from intentionally but a lot of the stuff the things that you love and the way that you intake art and what speaks to you emotionally i think builds your voice within that and so running from it feels insincere 
But I think the best moments is when you don't realize you're doing it. It's just part of like your natural vernacular. It's sort of how I do it. I, I don't think I've ever written something or gone to direct something and been like, this is my Linklater movie. But I think when I finish a project and I'm about to go into production, say, I do love to watch stuff and watch things with cast and crew for the vibe. I don't like to do a bunch of films with the same director because I do think then then I get in the headspace of I'm really thinking about that director. Yeah, I can't wait to make my brain movie. I want that. Can I be a part of that? For me personally, the way I work, I think I find the most sincerity in trying to make it my voice by vibing, but not trying to be direct. And that, I think, works because it's going to be there regardless. You love these things. They've inspired you. They live in you. But I'm less inclined to pull more directly. That could obviously change. And I think there's projects that, you know, there's this shot that exists and it does the thing that I want that pays the respect that I want paid but um, I tend to find that I I shy away from that I've seen some behind the scenes footage Uh, it was interesting Kubrick used to play classical musical cues well, I don't know if you've seen him getting Danny in the mood during the snow maze and he's playing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring and he's weirdly telling Danny he's like listen to that music like how does that make you feel and then Danny's listening and he's so sort of getting people in a mood it's something I've seen a lot of I love a playlist for actors and crew to understand sort of the feeling without having to be explained I think there's obviously a time and a place to explain but I really love just it's supposed to feel this way so I I like to make playlists to, to give to people to sort of tell that it was interesting one of my favorite people I worked with when I was in film school she was not a film person she didn't really like to watch movies And so she was a DP and I could not be like, I want it to look like this. She'd be like, well, what's it supposed to feel like? And it was so difficult to have to explain it. And then I realized that's the best way because I'm not trying to replicate. We're trying to get to the bottom of what it's supposed to be. And I think that was a really valuable tool for me. And then she'd go back once we had, uh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. Then she'd go back to like get the feeling from the stuff that I was maybe pulling from. But now I wasn't trying to mimic it. I had to explain what I want because often what I wanted wasn't actually that. I just thought that looked cool. Pop culture, final thoughts. Who wants to go first? Talk about anything you want to talk about that has nothing to do with what we just discussed. Uh, uh, you know, saw Boogie Nights on 70mm. It was awesome. I saw Iron Eagle 2. That movie sucked. Bad. Terrible use of 80s music. Was Lou Gossett in that one too? Yeah. Yeah, he was, unfortunately. It was just terrible. I scored in a uh, re-release poster of Fast Police Got Kill Kill, which I'm proud to own. Solid. I got, yeah, I know. I got a, an original 1941 poster that Lance Oswald gave me, who the owner of Los Feliz, gave me an original one sheet. So I'm pretty stoked to have that in my collection. Oh, yeah. I, I met Billy from Silent Night, Deadly Night. That was awesome. Super sweet guy. Super sweet guy. I've been catching up. On 2022 movies, in lieu of the Oscars, steadily coming towards us like a speeding train. And uh, two movies that I haven't seen people talking about as much that I both really liked. Daniel and Edwin actually talked about one of them. Daniel was, I think, kind of mixed on it, and Edwin did not like it, which is Noah Baumbach's White Noise, which I thought was uh, really, really good and interesting. And I want to watch it again sometime later this year once I can, like, revisit it and really think about it because it's it's very interesting. I would warn people that it's very episodic. I saw someone online describe it as, like, a long, weird, good Simpsons episode, and it also kind of reminded me of, like, National Lampoon's Vacation. It's kind of like, what if National and Poon's vacation halfway through it became a uh, lost highway starring Chevy Chase as that character 
Yeah, it's really good. And it's also an interesting follow-up to Marriage Story, where Marriage Story is clearly about Baumbach's failed uh, marriage with Jennifer Jason Lee, with Adam Driver playing him, and Scarlett Johansson as the Jennifer Jason Lee, more or less. You know, it's obviously fictionalized. Um, and then in this white noise, it's Adam Driver again, but then with Greta Gerwig, who he has actually been in a relationship with for over a decade now and it's a much more positive uh hopeful look i would say overall at uh marriage and and family life are they married uh no but they've been just partnered for since like 2011 or something yeah they just co-wrote the barbie movie i saw the trailer for that i was like Noah Baumbach co-wrote the Barbie movie i'm pumped for that that looks like it's gonna be great and then also i watched uh funny pages which is this uh, A24 movie produced by the Safdie brothers. Uh, it was actually, speaking of Noah Baumbach, it was directed by Owen Klein, who plays the younger brother in The Squid and the Whale, also the son of Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates. But uh, it's, there it's, you go. It's about this um, 17, 18-year-old kid who wants to get into like underground weirdo comic scene, and he decides to drop out of high school and live in the worst apartment. And it's kind of a it's very strange comedy that feels Safdie-esque in certain ways. Uh, there are some deeply uncomfortable situations that happen in the movie. The main character is kind of the worst <laughs> person. He, he has this seemingly subconscious belief that in order to be you know, a great artist, he has to basically be a jerk <laughs> and uh, a lot of just misplaced enthusiasm of being a very young it's really good. Not for everybody. Neither of these movies are for everybody. Um, and you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHala. Uh, I just think it's, it's worth it. And in fact, I'm going to make a note uh, just so that I'm not being a hypocrite and a horse's ass, which <laughs> I may still be. But when we talked a pot or two ago, uh, the earthquake had just happened in Turkey and Syria. And I said that at that time, the, the death toll was 5,000. It's now pushing 50,000, 60,000. Someone actually contextualized in a really interesting way. That's almost as many people as died just on the American side in Vietnam in uh, 14 years of conflict. That's that many lives wiped out in a week, probably a day, you know? I don't want to get sanctimonious about it or whatever, but I think when, when there is awful suffering somewhere in the world, don't worry, it's going to be visited upon us someday. You know, you don't have to go with my way of looking at the world, but I do think karmically it's a smart idea when you know that people are suffering in an unimaginable way, maybe to lend a hand. So I did just find out that Doctors Without Borders has been granted access to the earthquake hit parts of Syria. Syria was didn't really want to let a lot of aid in because uh, they're very suspicious about the strings that are attached with that aid. But they have allowed Doctors Without Borders. Turkey is getting tons of aid and is accepting the aid and you should still give. But if you give to Doctors Without Borders, I gave last time, I'm going to give today, but I'm going to give to Doctors Without Borders this time uh, because the people in Syria have just been suffering. You know, if you got a little cash instead of whatever, you know, maybe save on some stuff and give 25 bucks and it'll do an empirical good. It really will do an empirical good. I've been a a busy little bee and I have not had a ton of time to watch stuff, but I did get to catch uh, Fargo with an interview with Roger Deakins, which was a really cool experience. He's been a, a hero of mine for a long time and it was interesting to hear him talk about kind of his craft and the way he views things and also kind of the very like casual approachable edge he teaches to things. I think he was very, 
he would shy away from conversations of sort of the technical way I think we get into some talks about craft to talk about the why versus the how. He basically spoke, and I think he spoke about this before, but the, the idea that if it looks pretty and you notice it, he's failed, he believes because it's supposed to be in service of the story and it should feel cohesive. And I thought that was really interesting. And that has held me for, for the last two weeks. I've been living on that high. It was a, one of those situations where it was an audience Q&A, so there were some of the questions he clearly didn't want to answer, and he would make that known in terms of, you know, what's what was the hardest shoot you did? He's like, well, at the time, all of them, because they're all incredibly difficult. So it kind of became a thing like that. But just talking about his career and... He, he really, he pushed um, Kundun a lot as one of the most like pivotal experiences of his career in terms of working, creating it, but also looking back. Because he talks about, you know, he watches the movie so many times it's being finished that he typically doesn't go back to it. And so he was excited talking about like Fargo and stuff and the idea of revisiting stuff and being like, oh, this was good. I guess he was speaking that he went to a screening of a brother we're out there a few years ago and was really surprised by how good it was, <laughs> where he was like, oh, we did a great job on this. And I, I love that. I love that. I think it's pretty common for artists to not want to look at their stuff, but I love when they love it. I think it's, if we're making stuff that's for us to a degree, I, I hope everyone gets to a space where they get to enjoy the things that they had a part in. Secret Movie Clubbers, our next podcast will be Secret Movie Club Podcast 141. We are going to talk about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This was the movie that our very own Daniel Ott, who you just heard, chose as his birthday screening. We got to see it on 35mm. It was this amazing 2011 adaptation of the John le Carre spy novel starring Gary Oldman stepping into Alec Guinness's shoes because he really had defined the role in a TV miniseries and it's a spy movie. And so 141 is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and non-James Bond spy films. So the spy film genre, and we're not going to talk about Bond. And so join us for that. As always, you can see everything that we're doing at uh, secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets on Eventbrite. Write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. We are now in March. Join us for our March Musical Madness. And that's it. All right, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye, citizens. Uh, I hate movies. I, I, I love you. I hate movies. Edwin, 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 Edwin. Yeah, I, yeah. Edwin, 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 Edwin. Okay, okay pal. Okay. Edwin. Are you scaring me? Just, just, just stop. All right, just stop. Edwin, Edwin, uh, Edwin, uh, okay, Edwin. Okay, okay. It's not Brazil. All right. Edwin, Edwin. Okay, I, 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 I